Black on the Scene is a love letter to Black creators, Black content, and Black voices who are helping to drive change and representation in entertainment. I'm John Gist, here with my lovely co-host, Dee Dee Brown, and we are two industry professionals that have worked on some of the most iconic multicultural film and television campaigns over the years. The Black on the Scene podcast will highlight the many accomplishments of Black folks across film, TV, music, art, literature, and sports that celebrate diverse and nuanced stories which embody our culture. In each episode, we shout out and give flowers to some culture contributors and creators that you know and those you should know for being Black on the scene. Hope you all enjoy this week's conversation. Hey, 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 everyone. I'm your guy, John Gist, and I'm here with my girl, Dee Dee Brown, and Black on the Scene is back with more amazing dialogue with some of our favorite people in the industry. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. John, I am so excited about today's guest. We have the James Bland here with us today. Yes, Dee Dee, that's right. And James is a friend who I've known for quite some time, and it brings me so much joy to see his career continuing to blossom in such a great way. Listen, you don't have to tell me. I am the unofficial president of the James Bland Fan Club. Like, seriously, James, in our pre-talk, I didn't tell you this, but when we met, I totally swooned over you. I was like, John, who is this guy? It wasn't just the fact that you're, of course, a gorgeous, beautiful specimen of a Black man, but your energy, your kindness, your just quiet strength that you embody was definitely shining through. And I was like, I need to know him. (laughs) James, Uh, very much true story. Very much true story. (laughs) And the one thing I love about him, James, you work your ass off. James is a multi-hyphenate creator, FAMU, Go Rattlers, educator, writer, director, producer, and actor. He created, executive produced, and starred in the daytime Emmy award-winning drama series, Giants, currently streaming on BET+. On top of that, you might have seen his name in the credits during the HBO Insecure documentary, Insecure the End, that he directed. Yes, he directed it, which was so amazing. Brilliant. And most recently, he worked as a writer on the upcoming Peacock Limited series, The Best Man Final Chapters. And everyone, you know, I talk about The Best Man all the time, so I cannot wait to watch, watch that. that. And he, he is currently developing a new original series for 20th Century, Century Fox, Fox, which will write and star in. Dee and I are so excited to have you here, James. Please, thank, thank you so, so much for coming. Welcome to Black, Black on the Scene, scene with Dee and John. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm happy to be here because it's been two years since we've been in the same room, since the three of us have been able to like kick it in to conversate. Uh, so uh, I feel like we're back. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're back. Let's do it. Thank you. How are you? How are you doing today? What's going on? How are you feeling today? I'm doing good. Uh, I actually just got to Florida. Uh, My dad's birthday is tomorrow. And so I flew in. We're throwing him a surprise party. So by the time this airs, his birthday will be done. (laughs) Not that I don't even know if he would even listen to it. Uh, I was like, does my dad listen to podcasts? Uh, So I'll have to put him on. But uh, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm feeling great. Um, Yeah. Let's go, since you're in Florida, I think this is a really great way to go back to the beginning because James is from Florida. And mm-hmm. let's talk about young James Bland. Who were you as a kid? Mm-hmm. And were, were you, you always, always being, being pulled, pulled towards, towards the creative space? space? Always. I was always uh, a creative uh, child. 
Um, like I was that kid that would get color pencils and like creative art kits and sets uh, for Christmas and for birthdays. Uh, my main outlet for performance was the church. Growing up, I used to write and direct church plays. I was in the, the, the children's choir and I absolutely adored performing. Uh, however, I lost uh, so much of that as I kind of came of age uh, because, you know, growing up in the South, six, I'm six, six now, but, you know, I was always a tall kid. And so I was pushed more towards sports and towards basketball. And then, you know, you want to be cool growing up and being a theater kid wasn't a cool thing to do. Uh, and so I, I lost so much of it, I think, once I got to middle school and, and to high school and my complete focus went to basketball track and also ran cross country. Uh, but I, I rediscovered my love for the arts and for filmmaking and for theater and for performing once I got to college. Um, and I stopped playing basketball and had a little bit more time to uh, explore that other side. So it was always sort of noodling at you. You get to college and what was the thing that kind of that noodling or that needling just sort of bubbled up? Were you like, oh, you saw the theater kids doing something and you were like, I really should. Like, how did you get back into it, taking the step back? Because that's bold to take a step back from athletics and have enough confidence in yourself to really pivot at that young age. I did one play. Uh, a friend of mine, her name is Erin Washington. She was a theater major, and I can't even remember if I had a conversation with her that I was interested in acting. Um, I don't know why she uh, asked me to be a part of her. Uh, uh, it was a, it was a, uh, it was like a directing thesis or something she had to do for a class that she was taking, and she asked me to be a part of it. And so I got the opportunity to get on the stage and to act. And I was like, ah, oh, my God, I've been missing this. And then, and then there, someone told me that you could go to Florida State and audition for their student films. So I was like, okay, cool. That sounds like uh, a fun thing to do. And so uh, I went over to Florida State, auditioned for a student film, got the role, and then got exposed to the world of filmmaking. So it was my first time actually being on the set. And that's what lit the fire in terms of wanting wanting to write direct uh, for the big screen. And so then I set out my senior year to write and direct my first film. Uh, and I premiered that film uh, in our school auditorium and sitting in the theater with a, a room full of my peers and experiencing them watch something that I wrote, that I created, that I put on the screen is what solidified my desire to be a filmmaker. So I was a business major. I wasn't even studying film. I was studying business admin. And initially I was in a five-year MBA program, but I was like, nope, I'm going to drop down to the, the four-year, get my bachelor's. I'm out of here. I'm moving to LA to be a filmmaker. And that was it. Wait, wait I have to wait, jump wait, in. No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> this is what also, usually James, happens. We do this. We, we fight about questions as well. Um, but no, so I want to be, let me, let me, this is my phrase. So I got, I got, I can do this. Um, <laughs> so Jay, I think that's so fascinating. Um, so you were, you were a business major and what was the conversation like with your parents to say that I am going to stop you know, this business road that I'm going down, because I know that's very that's very safe and traditional, yeah. and say, mm -hmm. I'm going to do this completely different creative space, explore this, move to L.A., all these things. How was that conversation like with them? You know, my folks were supportive. I think because 
I was always a creative kid, they weren't surprised. Mm. Um, and I didn't necessarily have the parents that were pushing me in a particular direction when it came to a career. And also I went to college on a full academic scholarship. Uh, my parents didn't have to pay a dime for my college education. So it wasn't one of those things where they were like, look, we, we, didn't, we didn't spend all of this money for you to get this degree. We need a return on that investment. It was more so, okay, if that's what you want to do. And so I was really blessed to have supportive parents because I moved to LA with probably $500 to my name. I didn't have a car. I didn't even have a job lined up. I had found uh, an apartment to sublet through, this is random. I took piano as my free elective in college because I always wanted to learn how to play the piano. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna just take piano one and two in school and randomly ran into my piano instructor after I graduated. Now, mind you, you know, you graduate from college and folks are always like, what's next? Are you going to grad school? Do you have a job lined up? I didn't have none of those things. I didn't know what to say. So I would always just say, I'm moving to LA. I didn't have a job or an apartment in LA. I just said, I'm moving to LA. And so when I ran into my piano instructor, I gave her my spiel, oh, I'm moving to LA. And so she said, where are you living? And I told her, I don't know. And someone had told me that you couldn't find an apartment in LA for less than $800. I was paying $300 in Tallahassee, Florida. So $800 was like, that's a lot of money. Uh, but I told her my budget was 800 and she said she had an apartment in LA. She had she had gone to LA to audition for the LA Opera and she didn't get a, uh, a spot. And so she was coming back to Florida to teach. And so she had an empty apartment and that's how I got to LA. I yeah. mean, talk about then, serendipity. In, in LA, LA for two weeks. And I had been reaching out to Will Packer cause I had met him, told him I wanted to be a filmmaker, had sent him my film, reaching out, reaching out, you know, to no avail. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna just go to LA. First thing I did was I got a job at Macy's uh and then two weeks in i get a call from his assistant and said hey we're working on this film uh we want to offer you an internship but it shoots in la do you think you can make it out here to do the internship i was like i moved here two weeks ago you just let me know where i need to be and what time and i'm there and that's wow wait what movie was it it, it was, was called, called uh takers takers, takers. Oh, that's what i thought yeah, it was yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. nice wow yep. Paul Walker, mm -hmm. T.I., yeah. So, Chris Brown. Mm -hmm. that's really, just... so you're reaching out to Will. So at this point, you're just yeah. emboldened. Like, you're like, I got nothing to lose. I'm in L.A., I got $500 in my pocket. I'm working at Macy's, <laughs> but I've got the desire and passion to move forward here. And so, mm -hmm. getting that positive response from Will to do takers, you've got to be like, okay, this is it. But you're still working at Macy's. I don't know if this was a paid internship or not. No, I left. Oh, you did? I left Macy's. The internship was unpaid. But, you know, typically internships are there Tuesday, like Thursday. Or yeah. Like Monday, Wednesday, you're doing like two days. I was there Monday through Friday. Eight hours. And so they were like, we might as well pay them. So <laughs> after interning for free <laughs> for a couple of weeks, they just brought me on as a production assistant. So I was Will's intern who was getting paid as a PA. So I had a, a paid job in LA. I mean. I mean, shout out to our guy, Will Packer. Shout out. I love, <laughs> yeah. love our Will. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So you do takers and I was doing some research, AKA stalking you last night in preparation for, <laughs> for our, our, our chat. And 
from there, if I understand correctly, you got a, your next role or next step was being an assistant to a creative executive. Is that right? Or did I miss a step? Mm-hmm. No, nah, yeah. yeah. So, so after, after that, that internship, internship, Will went back to Atlanta. I'm still in LA, but I see the, the blessing was I was on Will's desk as his intern. Across, literally right across adjacent from his desk was the assistant to the head of production for the studio. So I would chop it up with her. When she would walk away from her desk, she would ask me to cover, you know, her phones. And so we developed a relationship. And so once that internship ended, I reached out to her and said, hey, I would love to, you know, come back and PA on another film. And so they brought me back and I was a PA in the office on Death at a Funeral, the remake. And then I became a cast assistant slash PA on a movie called Priest. And then I became uh, assistant to the creative executive, Scott Strauss, on a movie called Burlesque. Uh, So that was kind of the jump. So I ended up staying at the studio for about three years after that internship with Will. And all I needed was a foot in the door. So I always thank Will for giving me that opportunity because once you let me in, I'm going to do my thing. And that's what happened. I love, love, love that. I actually, um, you worked at Screen Gems because I worked on, when I was on the agency side, I worked on all those movies you talked about. That's so crazy. Wow. Wait, how did you two left. meet? How did you two meet in LA? We I don't think I know this story. Uh, how did we meet, James? The streets. The streets? The streets? Yeah, the streets. <laughs> I, yeah, we did, and we went on that trip to um, we went on that trip to Mexico, to Mexico, in whatever yeah. year that was. And I think that's I where think we kind of like. Having, I think we just had similar friends, and yeah. you know, you just we just crossed paths, and yeah, the rest is and I, and I yeah. like I told Didi all the time. I said, you know, I am always if she's the president, I'm the vice president of the James Bond fan club because like I'm just because <laughs> you're just such like. You're you're not at LA. You don't. You're not, we're not from there. But you just you know you you've been moving and do, grooving and doing your thing there. But it, it's never gotten to your head. Like you have legit receipts that it could get to your head. Like I'm not gonna talk to this person. Don't do that. Cause that's a very LA thing to do. But you've always mm-hmm. just been so genuine and so amazing. So I love the hearing this story uh, about saying, your journey you, because you as well. Because John, you have, you've leveled up. You've bossed up, <laughs> and uh, you've always been willing to help to give back. Uh, to talk to folks. I got somebody else I need to connect both of you guys with, by the way. Um, but I think we all collectively understand that that's what this is about, that yeah. we have to link arms. Yeah. And that if we don't help each other, then yeah. like, what are we doing? Yeah. You know? Um, I love that. It's about community. And I think that's one thing about Black on the Scene that we're also trying to do. Like, we're just shedding light on people's journey because everyone's journey. We've probably talked to 20 some people uh, throughout seasons, this season of the show, and everyone's journey is so different. But it's also, you hear so many similarities about just being the only one and what do you have to sacrifice and just the journey being so challenging. And I think that's what we want to bring to light. Like, you're not where you are today because of, of just because of fate. You're there because there's so much work you had to put into it, so much sacrifice you yeah. had to put into it. And I just, I want to, like, res- I give you so much homage and respect to that because, again, when I, when I saw you were directing an Insecure documentary, I literally, like, I cried. I literally cried. I was like, we oh both did. So... This is so, and it was so good. It was We're so good. But it was so freaking good. It was like the perfect send off. And I know you have a relationship with Issa, so it just, it just made sense. And I was just like, oh, James, amazing. I'm so happy for you. So kudos to you and everything else. I'm really, really happy about that. Um, but going back to your PA work um, during that time period, 
because I think it's very interesting of like, that was your first time you were interning, then you're PAing. So you probably were like, what am I doing exactly? Um, Mm -hmm. What were you, what were the kind of the (laughs) thoughts that that were going through your head? Like you're on a big budgeted feature film for a major studio with a big all-star cast. Talk about what that journey was like actually in Mm -hmm. that space during that time. You know, during that time, even though like production was so foreign to me, I felt as if I had been prepared for a time such as this. Uh, being an HBCU graduate, uh, I pledged a fraternity. I was student body vice president. And so you know how us HBCU, in particular us FAMU is how we move. Like we can come into a space and we have a, a certain level of professionalism, a certain level of, of grind, a certain level of tenacity, where although I was completely unfamiliar, like production was foreign to me, I was a quick learner. And it was, um, and also because I started in the office as an office PA, it's like those skills, I went to business school. And so I had a, a bit more of a, of, a, of a polish, you know, to me that uh, the production coordinators and even the executives gravitated more towards me because my presentation was always uh, a step uh, above. And so if, if I was making copies and I had to deliver scripts, the way my scripts were delivered were a little bit more pristine, pristine, you know? And I just remember having to put together like casting boards. And it's also where that create, creativity came in um, in that arts and crafts because my boards were always uh, just incredibly polished. Um, and so uh, I, I knew that I was there for a short time that I did not want to stay an assistant or a PA for a long time. I was there to get what I needed to get and to get out. And so I often say that, and that was my approach, was I wanted to treat it like a a school. I needed to learn what I needed to learn so I could go and apply it in real time uh, towards my projects. And uh, so, yeah, that was kind of my mindset um, during the time as a PA. Which is amazing, So I was simultaneously also making projects. And so I was learning production, and then I would immediately go and I wrote and directed my first short film while I was at Screen Gems. And I also utilized Screen Gems resources <laughs> in terms of copy machines, in terms of I, I made friends with the craft service guys. They gave me crafty, you know, for my own set. I met my producer on set. The DGA trainee became the producer of my short film. Uh, and the studio, the, the other crew, they were rallying behind me because I was also really vocal about being a filmmaker and having a project that I was actively working on. And, you know, when you speak up and you speak out and you let people know what you're doing, you'll be surprised at the amount of people who are willing to help you. So, James, in doing that, you've got a nine to five. And we know it's not really nine to five when you're working at a studio. So there's all sorts of stuff. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you well, know, not 12 hours, so like a six, 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 six to six. Yes. Nine to nine. <laughs> right. So you yeah. are doing that on top of, I guess, coming home, working on your own thing, or were you a weekend warrior? Are you working during lunch? Just could you expand on maybe how you di- how you managed to accomplish so much when there's only 24 hours in a day? In other words, there were no excuses on your part. You were like, I'm getting this done. So how did you manage your time? Yeah, all of the above in terms of what you said, in terms of being a weekend warrior, in terms of also, you know, when you're a PA in the office, there's a lot of downtime. A lot of time where you're just sitting around waiting on a a task. 
Uh, and, you know, 12 hours is a long time to be in an office. And so uh, I would work on my scripts uh, while I was, you know, in the office waiting for a different tasks to go do a run or to they needed copies or to make, you know, coffee. And so I think, you know, the thing that was also my projects were always on my heart. And so although I was um, at the studio physically, like mentally, I was always somewhere else. I was always thinking about um, the things that I wanted to create and put into the world. And I kind of utilized the studio system and being on that big set as the inspiration uh, because I knew I wanted to get there. But I knew in order to get there, in order to be the creative or the talent on a big movie set, I needed to go and make something. And so, and and then in the process of doing that, so you're working, you're 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 working all the time, pretty much. Like, what was your, what was your thing that kept you going? What like what motivated you throughout that? Because I'm sure there were a lot of challenges. You're like, I'm not probably making as much money as I probably should be making, or I'm spending too much time doing this. But like, what kept you going and going and going to kind of get? And how long did it take you from envisioning your first film? to actually getting it done. So we have a clear sense of time. Yeah. 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 I was making $500 a week <laughs> as a, as a PA. I remember that. Cause I remember I was, uh, it took me like, uh, almost three paychecks to get, cover my rent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what kept me going, I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos of folks that I admire. And I kept this journal and I would write the journey of people that had, you know, gotten to a place that I I wanted to be. And I kind of utilized other folks' success and journey to motivate me. Um, Like I would randomly just watch like like Academy Award acceptance speeches. So, uh, or I would go and read different people's like bio um, and it's always something when you realize that the people that you admire were also in your shoes. Um, and yeah, that was the thing that I did while I was also, when I wasn't working on my scripts, I was always watching something that was kind of motivating me because you know, that office life, oof, particularly when you're creative, it can really suck the, the joy <laughs> out of you. And time moves so freaking slow when you're in an office behind a desk doing something that you really don't want to do. So I always had to find things to kind of keep me, you know, on track uh, or to keep me motivated and inspired. And in terms of the the timetable from uh, how long it took to get the film up and going, I honestly don't remember with that particular project, with that film. But if I could give you a timetable for like Giants, if I could jump a little bit, if you guys don't mind. So I left, I was an assistant, I was an assistant to a creative executive at Screen Gems. I wanted to be an actor as well. I asked my boss if they, if I could be in a film that we were working on. It was a small role that I thought, oh, I could do this. I would be perfect for it. And he said, well, if you're on set, who's going to do your job? And I realized that I could never get to the place of being a creative and being an actor you know, being on that side, you know, of the studio system. So I knew I had to leave. And so I left, I moved into a two bedroom apartment with five friends and I just started making things. Uh, and I started focusing on web series. That's how I met Issa Rae. Cause I made my first web series. It was called fail. She had just, uh, launched the misadventures of aqua black girl. We had a mutual friend who wanted to also do a web series. And so she brought us together to pick our brains 
And uh, through that process, Issa and I kind of connected and decided to support each other. And that looked like me posting an episode of Aqua Black Girl on my Facebook wall, because that was the thing to do. Like, that's how you promoted people, because there was no Instagram. It was like, oh, I'll post a link on my Facebook wall. Um, did about five web series that did not take off. Right. And then so I went back into the workforce and I started working as a digital producer for TV land, working full time. And then I decided I need to make something. And so I started Giants. Now, that timeline, again, a weekend warrior working nine to five as a digital producer at TV land. It took me a year to write and shoot the first season. And then it took me another year, a full year to edit because I was editing every episode myself to edit, to do all of the post-production music mixing. So Giants uh, season one, six episodes was a two-year process from inception to putting it on the page, to getting it in the can, to then putting the project out in the world was two years. And you're also funding this yourself with your nine to five, correct? Yes. Man, I got to tell you, I mean, John and I sell fund, but we don't, we're not spending that kind of money and there's hard costs associated with production. And so you're learning to do a lot of these things yourself, right? Cause I'm sure you're like, I don't have the budget to pay somebody to edit. So I'm, I'm going to have to do this editing, but it's going to take me longer. So you're literally mm-hmm. building the plane while flying it. Yes. Trying to stay motivated. By the way, your manifestation skills are amazing. We need to have a masterclass from James Bland on manifestation. Let's do it. I am dead. Like when you're talking about just ways to keep yourself motivated and really, I mean, it's clear you're obviously a self-starter and you have a great deal of faith in your ability to figure things out. And that's not to say everything was smooth. I'm sure if you want to just talk about any challenges that you face, aside from the obvious of like having to do a soul sucking job for money, <laughs> but any challenges that you <laughs> faced sort of along the way where Shit. you were just like, am I in the right place at the right time doing the right thing? Like, please speak yeah. to that. Or I got robbed at gunpoint <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was early. That was in my first six months. And that was like my defining moment is also was the catalyst for giants. Uh, internship with Will Packer ended, went back to the mall, working at the mall, walking home, still no car. I uh, had my backpack with my laptop and my scripts. Two guys walked up to me with a gun and said, give us your shit. And I was like, not today. And so we got into an altercation. Um, and it was that experience that led to a conversation with my mom because I thought maybe it's time to come home. You know, I'm out here. I'm a, I'm a college graduate working at the mall. I ain't got no money. I ain't got no cars. Got robbed at gunpoint. I just had to go to the hospital. My face all fucked up. You know, maybe it's time to come home. And my mom was like, no, you still have to fight your giant. Like, and that means staying in LA and continuing, you know, to push forward. And so, uh, so that was a very real physical challenge. And then I would say the other challenges were I started to suffer a lot from like imposter syndrome. Um, and it's, it's wild. I was having a recent conversation with a friend of mine who is, uh, who is uh, Ugandan, and she was saying that she feels like imposter syndrome is a very African-American experience uh, because we were perhaps, perhaps it's because we were raised to, uh, that 
to, with the idea that we have to be twice as good. And so even though we're already like really great, we always feel like we have to be better or we're not enough. And so I would say one of my honestly biggest challenges was just my own insecurities of just not feeling enough or, and also um, just wondering if it's for me because you spend so much time, like I'm going on 14 years in LA and uh, there were times where I just wonder, is this ever going to happen? You know? Um, and so a few of the challenges, but I feel like some of the, the bigger ones were the ones in my mind. You know, it was the, the mental challenges that I had to overcome. And, and talk us through, because I think we all have those, that, those, those occurrences in your mind of like, what's next? How do I get to the next step? Am I doing the right thing? Am I talking? To, you know, I know I personally went through that as well. And, and LA is a tough city to maneuver around, especially if you want to be a creative like yourself. What was the thing or things that you did to kind of reinforce the complete opposite of that, to kind of keep you moving still? Because I think that, especially from a mental perspective, like, did you, did you find yourself having to meditate more? Did you find yourself just diving into your writing more to kind of cope with it? What, what was, was that, that kind of, of tangible, tangible thing, thing that, that you did, did to, to kind of help, help you escape, escape those, those kind of, of that, that mindset? mindset? Were yeah. you in church on Sunday like you were supposed to be? Oh, I was. I was. Yeah. I was, I was in, it, yeah. I was in church heavy in particular, early one church. Uh, early, one, early one church. Early one church, like North Hollywood one church. I was mm -hmm. in church every Sunday and Wednesdays as well. So I definitely had that spiritual, you know, uh, support. I also wrote my way through it. I just, uh, you know, even though I didn't necessarily feel like I was that great, I still, uh, I never let go of the desire, that thing in me that said, I need to create. Like, um, even when I felt like the things that I was making wasn't enough, I just had to do it. Um, and then, but I think the, the, the thing that was the most, uh, what up? This is Torrey host of the hard to earn podcast. And if you're a fan of music reviews, then be sure to check out and subscribe to hard to earn with my partner, Bonesu Thompson and I review your favorite new albums and classic albums on pivotal anniversaries, you know, 10, 15, 20, etc. We review track by track, rating from one to that elusive perfect 10. It's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. For me, was my tribe. I always surrounded myself around people who reminded me and who could see the things, you know, in me that I had lost sight of and I would say that was the, the the most important thing I just always had people around me that spoke life into me and that just reminded me yo you the shit or yo you are um you're a lot further you're a lot farther than you may you know realize or I'm really proud of you and then you're like oh yeah you're right okay yeah yeah okay you, you can you never you take you we kind of take for granted those small moments of that though because but they always come at the right time i have a mentor in my life who when i've had a rough day she will text me out the blue and i it, it'll be like the best wording of like you're such a rock star you're great i'm like damn right i'm great i needed to hear that <laughs> I, need, I, I, I needed I, that yeah i needed that and you because you'll go down this road and i and i love that you said that your tribe because i know you have a very close circle of friends um, that have been, you know, a, a, a rock for you um, to a degree. And I want to talk about that for a moment because, again, when you moved to L.A., how familiar with the city 
were you in terms of friends and everything like that? So you kind of had to start over to a degree, right? I didn't have any. Yeah. <laughs> I, I moved to LA. It was just me. I had a cousin here who picked me up from the airport and she lived in Long Beach and dropped me off in mid city. That was it. Um, and so the tribe that I have now are folks that I accumulated along the way or folks who migrated to LA who I knew from college or back home. But when I initially got here, it was just me. Um, but um, what was the question? I'm sorry. You answered it, actually. Okay. I did. <laughs> um, okay. and, and one other thing I want to say, too, about that is, because um, I know a lot of people always talk about the challenges of L.A., right? So obviously the, mm-hmm. the, the expenses, not knowing people, the, it's, it's a very different culture coming from Florida, coming from Atlanta. For me, it was like, I was like, whoa, what is this? Um, and you've been there, we said 14 years. 14. What would you tell your, what would you tell your 14 years ago self, James Lane, when you come to LA, what would be that like one piece of advice you would say, say to yourself back then? It won't happen overnight. And so the quicker you accept that, the better off you'll be. Just know that it's a journey and, um, you know, you don't want to shoot up like a rocket. You want to, you want that slow ascension like an airplane. So once you hit that altitude, you glide. Because the goal is longevity. The goal is not to be a shooting star that burns bright and burns fast. That is the such a great like analogy to thinking that we have to peak at 25. And by the way, you're still so young. It's unbelievable. You have really worked so hard and you're not even 40 yet. So God only knows where you're going to be when you're 40, 45 at this rate. Um, but it just shows you that you are really, as John said, you're hardworking, you do the work, you have an, uh, an immense amount of um, faith and and diligence, but also just grace because you're not getting there alone, alone, like the tribe that you guys are pouring into each other. I'm sure you're mentoring in official and unofficial ways. So you're just pouring back into the community. And one thing in my research of you, Mr. Bland, was it was, um, I think, a, a video you did for a Queerity Award. And you talked about wanting to see yourself. You also talked about the pivotal time of you coming out. Right. And for me, it, 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 it was really it hit home for me because I have a young nephew. I'm from Alabama. And my family, I'm sure, grew up very much like your family, very religious, um, in church on Wednesdays, Sundays, you know, uh, uh, evening service, the whole nine. And my nephew, who is about 31 and has been out for a while, is really struggling right now between his, he's an opera singer, he's a creative too, and um, actually has a master's degree in, in music, so he's a brilliant kid. But he's struggling in a small town, being a young gay black male, a creative. And I've, and this is not something I can speak to him. I just know a bunch of amazing, fabulous, you know, gay black men. And everyone's journey, I'm sure, is different. But you wanted to, you, your journey to that place, I would love if you could just share a little bit about that if you want to, or any advice for my nephew and any other, uh, uh, anyone else embarking on this, this journey. Yeah. You know, I, I would say 
what I what I did not realize is that uh, my queerness was my superpower, um, and we spend so many years trying to uh, hide and play small and um, and not really recognizing that we are pushing aside the best parts of ourselves and the thing that will ultimately elevate uh, elevate us, elevate our lives and our careers. Um, and the best thing that you can be is authentic. And for those of us who are raised in the church, um, my mother told me this. My mom said that God can do more with an honest heart. And so uh, that is what he's searching. And I think scriptures tells us that he scans the earth and he goes from to to fro looking for a heart that is willing to serve him. And it does not matter your sexual orientation or who you choose to love. And it's oftentimes those are the people that God is looking for. Those are the folks that God is looking to use, you know. And so um, the quicker that you can accept that and that you can learn just radical love and agape love. Um, and, uh, you know, and Christ said that three things shall remain. And the first of these is love. Um, but it has to start with yourself. And what I find and what my experience was is that I had not fully learned how to how to love me, you know, how to love James. And I was living for the expectation of other people. And I think oftentimes we grow up with this embedded feeling that we are unlovable. And it is a, it is the work of the church and the work of our family to speak against that. Because inherently, that's kind of what society in Florida with this don't say gay bill uh, is we're telling young people that inherently you are unlovable. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. And so, um, yeah, I think that would be my advice is is to do the work and whatever you got to do to get to that radical love where you can love you first. Nothing else really matters, you know, after that. And for you, the work was you were, I'm sure you stayed prayed up. You surrounded yourself with a wonderful tribe of people. Was there anything else that you did? Were you hitting that gym hard? Were you walking? You're journaling at this point. I'm just looking for tangible things that I think that people can take away that like, listen, you can Google all this stuff, but it's really interesting to hear what, you know, might've worked for you. Yeah. You got to get around people. Mm -hmm. I think you got to get around people who are there. Uh, You know, it's like that thing they say, it gets better. Uh, but we don't often know that because we don't often get the opportunity to see ourselves. And it's kind of like what I said in that video is I desperately wanted to see myself, uh, but uh, representation is lacking when it comes to uh, queer Black men on screen. And so we don't get to see the experience of a Black man loving another Black man on screen. And so we don't necessarily all, and particularly if you're growing up in a small town, like I remember for me, the first time I even saw a glimmer of it was in Moon, was not Moonlight, was in Noah's Ark. And that was 15 years ago. And then Moonlight came around and Moonlight was like the first time that I saw uh, a glimmer of myself because I couldn't necessarily relate to the characters uh, in, in Noah's Ark as much because it just felt like a completely foreign world. And so I, I guess to go back to the question in terms of what does the tangible work look like, uh, the best you can, and it, it can maybe be difficult to find folks um, in particular where you live, but if you can get around people who are there, 
who uh, have gotten past acceptance and are like reaching that place of pride, I think uh, you can then have the conversations uh, and then they can, can love on you and speak against some of the, the things that are just embedded, you know, in us. And then therapy. I mean, therapy is, uh, I think, the place where I did a lot of that, that inner child, you know, type of type of work that you got to do in terms of recognizing a lot of your, your, your patterns and why am I self-sabotaging? And, you know, it's also that realization that, um, kind of, and it's, it's kind of cool that we, we started this podcast talking about like young James, like little James, but trying to get back to him. And, uh, and that can, show up in different ways. It could just show up going, getting back to your creativity or getting back to things that you let go because you felt like you didn't have the permission or you weren't allowed to do those things. And so I think those are probably a few tangible examples. James, I think you need to add like public speaker, motivational speaker to your, to your <laughs> resume as well. You have such a really beautiful way of your words. Obviously you're a oh, writer, you. but like the way it's just, yeah. there's just so much compassion um that you have and i'm just like dd's crying as you can say <laughs> check you did what you needed to do so i i really I, I i loved everything you said and one other thing one other thing you said too was that i really resonated with me was about what your mom said to you about being a giant and i i think that's such a amazing thing for a black woman to just reinforce that in her black son and I just, I wanted to just call that out because I just think that's such a, you have very amazing parents brought up what it seems and, you, and you're very blessed to have that. So kudos to you. Um, we are going to have to wrap it up very soon, but um, I want to talk about what's next. What's in the future? I know I hinted towards a few things in the, in, in the intro, um, but what's, what's else do you have brewing? What's going on that you can talk about? I, I want to say the best man's going to come out later this year, but don't quote me on that. Um, beyond that, I'm in development on a show that I created. It's called Trade. And it's, you know. <laughs> I'm familiar. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, all yeah. of those things. And so currently in development on that. Uh, so prayers up. I get a, a pilot order uh, and immediately following a series order uh, very soon. But, um, yeah, it's what I'm actively working on. And um, that that is that is it. <laughs> And well, still, I'm sure still writing your own personal things as well and working. Yeah, on so working on a feature, uh, set a goal to get this feature uh, that has been kind of rumbling in my heart and in my head onto the page this year. Uh, we'll probably continue to staff and jump on another show. And uh, also looking to direct my first DGA episode of television this year. Thank you so much to our guests and to you for listening to this week's episode of Black on the Scene. We'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review, plus share your own love letter for Black entertainment and follow us on all social media platforms at Black on the Scene. See you next time. Hi, everyone. We are officially wrapped on season three of Black on the Scene. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Didi and I really appreciate all the love, all the support all of our viewers and followers have shown us over the past three seasons. And just you wait. We will be right back with you guys again next year for season four. See you soon.